Welcome to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Shocker. Today on 30 Minutes, we'll continue with remarks made at the 2018 Tucson Festival of Books at Nuestros Reyes Stage, which was curated by the Pima County Public Library. University of Arizona Associate Professor of Africana Studies, Dr. Tani Sanchez, spoke in a presentation entitled Erased But Not Forgotten, Black and Latinx Heroes of the Old Pueblo. Librarian Jessica Pride was the moderator. Dr. Sanchez described growing up in Tucson and learning about her history through her grandmother and then going on to further pursue her ancestry through oral history, genealogy, and DNA. She compiled her family history in the book Didn't Come From Nothing, An African-American Story of Life. This is part two of a two-part series. Here is Jessica Pride, followed by Dr. Tani Sanchez on 30 Minutes. We want to thank the Friends of the Pima County Public Library for sponsoring this venue and for supporting Nuestras Raices. Uh, Nuestras Raices is a library program that builds community by celebrating Mexican-American authors, arts, and culture. And today, Nuestras Raices is also co-sponsoring this panel with Kindred, Pima County Public Library's committee to support, promote, and celebrate the black community in Tucson. I'd like to introduce you to Dr. Tani Sanchez. She is the author of Didn't Come From Nothing, An African-American Story of Life, um, and is an associate professor of Africana Studies at the University of Arizona. She has an interest in racial representation in the media and in the study of African-American history and culture. She has worked as a newspaper editor, radio news host, and as a media information specialist. Dr. Sanchez is also the first president of the now-defunct Tucson chapter of the Afro-American Historical and Genealogical Society. Her doctorate is in comparative culture and literary studies, and her master's degree focused on visual culture and art history. She has lectured in Tucson and other cities on black history, racial representations in film, and on African-American family history and genealogy. Her wide-ranging background in broadcast and written journalism, as well as in public affairs, has included overseas assignments in the U.S. Army and a stint in the Arizona National Guard. Her academic writings have been published in two anthologies. She has created political videos and has written and edited books and newsletters for community-based associations. A second edition of Didn't Come From Nothing was recently published as well. In addition to classes in Africana Studies, Dr. Sanchez has also taught art history and art appreciation courses. Welcome, Dr. Sanchez. Thank you. There's a lot of reference in that time period in your writing about the local and national colored women's clubs, the Lynx clubs and other organizations that women of color either started or joined here in Tucson and throughout the country. And just on a personal note, I, I recall reading about these in some novels by uh, black women who really referenced those when trying to get a, a real 
pinpoint on what black women were doing Mm -hmm. even in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. So could you talk more to that? Well, I'm going to talk about the links with uh, the acknowledgement that I'm not a link. Um, I don't really know all that much about their history, but I'm going to talk about what I know in Tucson, Arizona, and maybe a little bit beyond. It really is a very prestigious African-American organization. They have debutante balls. And normally, if you're a member of the links, then you are come from a family that has some property, some money. Very prestigious. How many of you have heard of the links? Oh, okay. Wow, quite a number. So it's um, that's that's the way it is normally. I remember when I first left Arizona and I went to um, I lived in Louisiana, and I was talking to a man there. And we were having conversations on and off, and I said, "Oh yeah, I was in a Lynx debutante ball," and his eyes got all big, and it was like, "Oh wow, she must be really important. She comes from a really important family." And so later I was thinking about it, and as I analyzed this, I what I realized was Tucson has such a small community and everybody knew everyone else. So if you're going to have a debutante ball in Tucson, Arizona at that time, you're not going to have super wealthy people even though you did have affluent people. So what you looked for were people who came from good families, had a good moral reputation, and they were part of the debutante pool. So I think that's one thing that Tucson had. And so I was a link debutante, but I wasn't from a wealthy family at all. (laughs) And a lot of the things that go with it I didn't have. That's one thing that I remember. Doing a slight shift from the history to your actual craft. So in didn't come from nothing, it's really important to place the family history within the greater context of black history, Um, especially in the years before, during, and after the Civil War, or at least that's what I picked up. How did you make those bigger connections in your research, and were you looking for more prominent events in history, or did they sort of fall into place as you were working out your own family history? They sort of fell into place. I think if you're from a marginalized group, then there are some things you're going to pick up. If you have any access at all to community members or or, uh, subjugated knowledges, if you have any access to that. There are some things because you're positioned to look at things critically. You're positioned to look at things in terms of how does this impact a black person? How does this impact someone who's not white? There are some things that you're automatically going to just kind of say, okay, I, I get this. For example, when I was in the army, I was young men, and I was thinking, oh yeah, great, I'm going to cut off my hair. I'd been living in New Orleans, and I had really long, straight hair. And in New Orleans, it was kind of, a, that's where I was married and had my baby. In New Orleans, it was like, put on that lipstick, get all made up. You didn't even go to your mailbox unless you were looking a certain kind of way. <laughs> One woman told me, she said, I might meet my future husband at my mailbox. So I was like, okay, all right. But that wasn't who I was. I mean, I came to New Orleans with a little afro and everything and, you know, wear my kind of, you know, ethnic garb. So anyway, uh, six years in New Orleans, I left with lipstick and makeup and long straight hair. So what I did was uh, I said, I'm joining the Army when my marriage ended. I'm going to cut off all the straight hair and I'm going to be, I'm going to get some dreadlocks. Well. Private Benjamin, basically. Um, You're not wearing dreadlocks in the Army. 
and at the time I said okay I can't do dreadlocks I said at least I'll get braids I'll get lots and lots of braids it'll be easy and I found out they had a regulation back then that you could not have more than three braids and I was furious I said no no white woman cares whether she has more than three braids but black women do this all the time I'm sorry again repeat the question <laughs> you have such great stories we're just following along um, so the question was about finding the prominent places in history while you were writing or doing research, Um, but whatever you want to tell us. Well, all right, I had to write about Marianne. I kept trying to start the book writing about Charles Wright, but I didn't have enough information to put a story together on him. But I found that I had a lot of information on Marianne and the people who own Marianne. So it was sort of, I kept trying to write it one way, and it wouldn't go that way. So part of it was just as it flowed. I started realizing that her slave owners were really prominent people in the society. So I looked for everything I could find about the slave owners. I tried contact family members, descendants, to say, do you have diaries? Do you have any kind of written work that tells me more about where they might have mentioned their slaves? Or even, you know, that was my my biggest wish. I could find a photograph maybe of the slave owners with their slaves. I was wanting that so bad. I was not successful in reaching or getting the documents that I wanted, even though I did talk to several uh, descendants of the owners who were quite helpful. But um, I, I found a lot of information about black people in Lake Charles, Louisiana, which is where she was at. And so it was really interesting to me. And I started putting it all together to say, maybe I can't talk about her beyond the oral tradition or beyond the um, Civil War documents, but I can sure talk about what it was like to be a black person in that particular area mm-hmm. and to be an enslaved black person. And so it, it's kind of cool. It was it really worked out, I think. I think that if you read the book, what I wanted was for you to understand how overwhelming it is to be immersed in a society where you're less than human. And so that's, um, and there were just, there was just so much documentation. People had written about a lot of things for, and from a lot of different uh, viewpoints, not even intending necessarily to talk about the condition of uh, black people in that city. So it just sort of evolved. Yeah, and it, it definitely fits into the encapsulated whole of at least those time periods that you focused on. So thank you. I want to go back a few, a few topics um, because you mentioned um, doing DNA research. As more and more people are starting to get more interested and more things become available, um, for tracing ancestry, especially to the African continent, how do you see the rest of genealogy changing? Well, what is happening now is that um, the company, AfricanAncestry.com, they are the only company right now that has um, an investment and that started off to link um, Africans to African Americans. So um, they're doing tours. People who uh, all come from or are linked to a certain group, they'll do a tour to that country. So that's one of the things I see uh, that is happening now. They also have a Facebook group that you can only join if you've taken the test. And people on there are very active in saying how excited they are to realize they come from the Mindy people or from whatever particular group they're linked to. Um, I think what I would really like to see is 
tests that not only link you to a specific tribe or ethnic group is the proper word, um, but also link you to individual people. There was a documentary called Motherland, A Genetic Journey that was put out some time ago. A really good film. And in this, a British company actually linked people to specific families. And I wish that service were available. I, I actually recently contacted that company and sent them some DNA information. I haven't heard back from them yet, um, uh, but I expect to within a week or two. They're the ones who linked families, and I asked them if they would do that. And the reason I'm doing it is not because I think, you know, I, I don't have um, rose-colored glasses. I don't think that I'm going to go home and it'll be like, my sister, you're here, we were waiting for you. I, I have no expectation of that. And I think people who are looking for identities elsewhere basically are barking up the wrong tree. But I still want to be able to put some names on the tree. I still want to be able to know that that family group is out there that I was connected to. That's one of the things I would like to happen with DNA. What I see a lot of DNA companies doing is they are making efforts to contact Africans, particularly those that have already come to America, and offer them free DNA tests because they know that that market is out there. So, But you can't do anything. You can't match anyone if you have no one in your database. Most of the companies have focused on Europeans. And so when they give you that ethnicity proportional thing, it's like, yeah, that's kind of fun. I, I'll take it under, you know, with, with a grain of salt. I mean, I'll listen to it. I'll, I'll use the information. But if you don't have an extensive African database, you, you don't have it. So they might tell you you're Nigerian, you know, the lady with the hat and ancestry DNA. But that doesn't mean that they've tested other groups around her. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to know that I'm Nigerian. You tell me I'm, I'm a Khan or Shante or something like that. And then that makes a difference to me. So... I do think that there is an interest, more of an interest, in increasing African databases. Yes, and we've definitely seen that. I I personally have seen some of my friends who took advantage of that recent sale and posted like this portion of this this group and this portion of this group. So it's it's been great to watch people become more interested. Yes. I want to go back to something you said when you were introducing your book and your, your thoughts about writing your book. Um, you said, learning about black history was not what we learned about in schools then. And we've seen a lot of talk about what people are learning in schools now. And as a professor in Africana studies, you're seeing the students who are learning right now. Have you seen in their knowledge of, of everything that's happening in the United States and across the world. Have you seen a more advanced or broad knowledge of what people are learning? I'm always happy and, and just a little surprised when I realize that a lot of my students who are not African-American, that they do get it. Some of them do get it. They, they write, they know, they've taken the time, they've said something is going on racially, and some of them have really said, I want to know what this is, and that's why they're taking the classes. But there are still those who are like, I never heard of this. This is the most amazing stuff. Wow, wow, you know, whoa. I didn't, you know, they're just like so excited and not knowledgeable, and, and that disturbs me a bit. The class that I teach right now is hip-hop cinema. 
And uh, so it combines hip-hop culture, the dancing, the singing, um, the, the attitude, the so-called hip-hop attitude. It combines all of that and says, how does this appear in cinema? And how is this relevant to combine the two different areas? And um, I get, you know, <laughs> as many as 1,400 or more students per semester that take this class. It's online. I have, at the end of the course, I have a survey, and I go through every single person that responds to my survey, and I, I look at what is it they learned. I ask them, what did you learn? And when they come to my office, I always ask them, what did you get out of this class? And I listen to see whether they were asleep, you know, skimmed through it or whatever. And I think many of them are just unaware of the stereotypes, that they're still living in a world of stereotypes about marginalized people. They seem to be shocked that um, people notice and they reference, and it's as if their eyes have been open. Um, that whole thing that Lawrence Fishburne said in school days, wake up! Some of them get awoken a little bit. And uh, so it's, it's gratifying that I'm doing something that I really believe in and I'm pointing things out that seem obvious to me. Did you notice that all the black women are dressed like hookers in the movie? Did you notice that all the black people died in the movie? Did you notice that there are no African Americans here or there? You know, I mean, these are things if you're black, you just, you can hardly not notice it. But it's really good to point it out to people who are suddenly saying, oh my gosh, she's right. It isn't there. These writers know what they're talking about. Something has happened. And, and I don't fault anyone who doesn't know because that's why you go to a university. You go to a university to find out about things you don't know. You go to a university to broaden your mind. And so for those students for whom that is happening, I feel really gratified and happy. That is the extent of my questions for you. Thank you so much for giving us your stories and, and your wisdom. Um, and now I can open it to any questions from out here. Okay, I'm going to wait for the chimes to stop. You are listening to remarks made by University of Arizona Associate Professor of Africana Studies, Dr. Tani Sanchez, in a presentation entitled Erased But Not Forgotten, Black and Latinx Heroes of the Old Pueblo with moderator librarian Jessica Pride on 30 Minutes, 91.3 KXCI Tucson. An audience member asked who Dr. Sanchez's Tucson heroes are. Well, there's so many. There's Morgan Maxwell, who was at Dunbar, uh, Dunbar School, uh, who just influenced uh, so many teachers. Um, Oh my gosh, there were people in my church who just looked out for me. Um, my grandmother, absolutely. Um, I can't, my uh, home ec teacher at John Spring, when Dunbar was integrated and changed into a uh, no longer a black school, she just, she was, she really influenced me. You know, I mean, little things like learning how to sew, put patterns together, that just sort of shapes your mind. And then knowing that people there care about you, that they remember you. And, 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 and knowing also that if you do anything wrong, they're going to go to your mother because they know your mother. You know, they're going to, all that kind of stuff. So it, I can't, no one, one person is coming to mind, just a community of people. Great. Thank you. An audience member asked about Esteban, the enslaved Moroccan man who explored present-day Texas, New Mexico, and Arizona with Spanish conquistadors. He is considered the first person of African descent to enter the American Southwest, but is largely unknown. 
I know Esteban Park, but I never made the connection. So uh, how does one make the connection of Esteban when they go to Esteban Park? Is there a statue there? Or is there a history there indicating? Uh, I can tell you that I started doing a history of the um, National Association of Colored Women's Clubs in Arizona. And my grandmother, the one who influenced me so greatly, she had boxes and boxes of notes, um, minutes from the 1930s. She had collected and saved all kinds of memorabilia. And I'm like, I started putting this together, and I'm like, does anyone know this? Do they know that these black women went to the mayor, and it's recorded in their their notes? Does anyone know that these women agitated for this? And there it was all recorded. And so when I wrote my history, which I'm going to republish, there it was. I don't know that anyone has those notes. And she not only kept notes of the Tucson clubs, she kept notes of the Phoenix clubs and the Sierra Vista clubs. And so I actually don't donated her notes to the Arizona Historical Society uh, less than a year ago because I had already written my history. And I'm like, who has this? I don't know. So the answer to your question is, they've got to be out there. I can't possibly be the only family group that who's has someone who kept it, kept all the information, all the notes. I mean, I know my grandmother was special, but it just was mind-boggling. I had no idea myself about Estevan and the relationship and how they even had a committee formed to figure out how they should, who they were going to name it after, where it would be located, all of that stuff. So is there some place you can go? Hopefully there are other people who have this information saved up somewhere in their homes and they're going to either publish it or they're going to give it away to a historical society, hopefully. Um, how do you make the connection? It is there buried in history books. It is the mention of Estevan. I mean, I, I don't know how you find out. I I wanted to know. I lived near Estevan, two blocks away from there as a child, so I I don't know. I, I It's there. I know some people know it. And other than that, I can't really say much more than that. Uh, you mentioned buried histories, and these histories, when we do try to unearth them and teach them in elementary schools, a la the Mexican-American Studies program, there's resistance, obviously. <laughs> so what would you, what do you think might be an effectual way to restore and sustain and teach children in elementary school? Because I teach college, too. And when I let my students know that, yeah, Tucson was segregated. We had a black school. Most of my students were like, really? What? You know, so <laughs> it was an eye-opening experience. But, you know, do you have, I, I know you don't have all the answers, but what would be a great way to maybe to restore and sustain and expand these studies in elementary schools? Well, I think there are two different levels. Um, the first level is personal. My daughter was raised here, and because I'm from here and because you know, I just didn't, I had low expectations. I expected that I would go to the PTA meetings. I expected that I would go to her teachers and I would say things like, oh, my daughter's in your class. That's so exciting. You know, she's really intelligent. You know, I really expect you to call on her. And it's Black History Month. How can I help you? What are you doing? And the answers are always nothing. So, oh, well, I've got some posters. Maybe you could use the posters. So on a personal level, I think you can make a difference. You can go to, you can be, you have to be involved in the school in some way. 
Um, and for me, that was like, my daughter is not going to be shoved aside or ignored. There's going to be, there. whoever's teaching her, they're going to know that there's this bubbly, happy woman who expects them to treat my daughter like she's made out of gold. But that comes from coming from a family where my mother was an educator. She was an educator. She gave me tips. And then my grandmother was an activist. I remember one time um, uh, in elementary school, one of the kids had an accident and peed all over the floor. And so, you know, we're kids. We're all laughing. Going, ah! And then the teacher said, okay, all the black kids, you get towels and you clean it up. <laughs> so we were mad. And so I came home, and at that time I was going home to my grandmother until my mother got off work and could pick me up. And I told my grandmother about it, but I, I knew something was wrong, but you can't always articulate what's wrong. The next day, or in the next couple of days, both my grandmother and my mother were down at that school making a complaint. You have to be kind of personally involved and not naive. Um, I don't think that a lot of people are consciously trying to be racist. That might be a naive statement, but I don't think that most people are. But I do think that people do things unconsciously, and you have to kind of listen and be aware and have an attitude that I don't live in, um, what's that place, the place that's perfect? Shangri-La. Shangri-La, yeah, I don't live, I don't live there. So I'm going to be aware and conscious. So that's just on a personal level. Um, on an institutional level, I don't know. I really don't know. You know, it's, it's tough because I used to work at TUSD when I first heard that Mexican-American studies was being pulled out because, you know, Phoenix voting, I mean, that's another way to do that. I think I try to get my students to vote. Um, half of them, when the 2016 election rolled around, I asked them, how many of you are voting? Half of them raised their hands. The other half were indifferent. Or as one of my students said, well, I know the outcome of this election. And I asked her, and I said, well, who do you think is going to win? She's like, Hillary. And we know what happened then. And, you know, you, you, but the student was a gay student, transgendered. And, you know, the, we can't let it go. We have to vote. We have to take control. Finally, Dr. Sanchez was asked where to find the book Didn't Come From Nothing, an African-American story of life. You can order it from Amazon.com, but I'm constantly changing the book, and I just put a change in this morning. So, well, you can put in the order. They're just going to tell you you have to wait about a week or so. And But also, I should say that um, the bookstore apparently has some copies. Oh, they do? Yes, yes. And I work here at the U of A. If you buy a book and you want me to sign it, just um, reach me by email or come by my office during office hours, and I'll sign it. We'll have to leave it there. You've been listening to remarks made at the 2018 Tucson Festival of Books at the Nuestros Raices stage, curated by the Pima County Public Library. University of Arizona Associate Professor of Africana Studies, Dr. Tani Sanchez, spoke in a presentation entitled Erase But Not Forgotten, Black and Latinx Heroes of the Old Pueblo with moderator librarian Jessica Pride. You can learn more about her family history and the book Didn't Come From Nothing, An African-American Story of Life. This has been part two of a two-part series. 
You can find this and all other recent episodes of 30 Minutes on the 30 Minutes program page at kxci.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Amanda Schager.